Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. There are so many great things going on at Collective right now, so make sure you are following us on social media at My Collective Church to stay in the loop. Now let's get into Sunday's message. How many of you knew there was a second verse in that song? I had no idea. They started playing it. I was like, I just thought they looped the first one over and over and over again. Uh, in 1999, when the show Friends was hitting its peak, they were averaging 24 million viewers per week. And during this time, a guy named Ray Oldenburg put out a book called The Great Good Place. And in his book, Oldenburg, who was a sociologist, wrote that it's crucial for people to escape from a sense of loneliness and build a sense of community. And he said that for a healthy existence to exist for other people, people must live in a balance of three realms, home life, workplace, and social spaces. And in his book, he actually coined this term called a third place to describe these social spaces. And he said that a third place is a place where you regularly connect with other people. And through decades of studying human behavior, he found that your first place is always going to be where you live. Your second place is always going to be where you work. This is partly why during COVID, when some of you started working at home, there was so much tension, right? Because we have to have multiple places and all of a sudden you had just one. You couldn't differentiate, is this a home place or is this a workplace or a life place? But they found that the third place can be anything outside of those first two. It can be coffee shops, parks, bookstores, churches, gyms, and more. And this idea of third places really became popular because of the show Friends, right? Because they all had a third place that was called Central Perk, right? Most of the show took place in this coffee shop. And the idea of third places where people hung out, where they find community, where they live life together had such a huge impact through the early 2000s that Starbucks actually completely changed how they designed stores during that time in hopes that they could be the third place. In his book Onward, CEO Howard Schultz says that his dream was that Starbucks would be Central Perk for other people. Here's what's interesting about third places though. The third place isn't really about a place. Right? Oldenburg said a third place can virtually be virtually any location where there is community. And that's because a third place isn't about location, it's about people. A third place is about friendships because I can go to Starbucks every single day. By the way, PSL season started on Thursday. How many of you went already multiple times, right? I can go every day and get my PSLs that doesn't mean it's a third place because I don't know anybody else who's there. Right? And you can go to the gym, you can go to the dog park, you can go to a brewery every single week, but it's not a third place unless relationships are built. The same is true for church. You can go to church, but it does not become your third place until you stop being part of a crowd and choose to start being part of a community. Now today, Friends is widely considered one of the best television shows of all time. And this is my hot take but I don't think it's because the show is particularly good. I, it's not. I, I don't think Friends is that good. I personally think the characters are kind of insufferable. In fact, if you had to decide which one you wanted as a friend, your answer would be none of them, right? They're annoying. They're all annoying. But I think the reason why people love the show Friends so much is because we want what the main characters have. We want a tight group of people to do life with, to have meals with, to celebrate milestones and holidays with. We want a group of friends that will be there for us when life isn't going the way we had hoped, right? When life is stuck in second gear and it hasn't been our day, our week, our month, or even our year. 
That is what we want. And I think the reason why Friends is so popular is because it hits on this desire that we have to have a strong group of friends, to have a crew, because deep down inside, we long for that. So today we're in week two of our series called Find Your Crew, and this series is about experiencing community the way that God has designed it. And we're using Jesus's life and ultimately his friendships as the model because we believe that Jesus did it right. Last week, we talked about how Jesus had these circles of friendship and how like most things come true eventually, psychology and sociology did some research and they backed up the way that Jesus was living. And, and it breaks down like this, like we have a crowd and the crowd can be up to about 150 people. Uh, we have a community, or at least we need a community. For Jesus, this was 12. For a lot of people, this will kind of fluctuate between 15 and 50 and we need a crew. For Jesus, it was three. For us, science says that we can have about five people because this is how Jesus lived his life. He had a crowd of people who he was regularly around. He had a community of people who he spent intentional time with, but then he had this crew that he went deep with, that he shared his fears and his burdens and his life with. And this whole series is about how, is about how just like Jesus, we need three to five people that we can have closer friendships with because that is how God created us. God created us to have these real, life-giving, intimate, healthy friendships. And so over the next three weeks, I'm going to share three different stories from the Bible about what a crew looks like. And we're going to talk about how we get to this point with other people. And the reason we're doing this series right now uh, is ultimately to encourage every single person here to take a next step. It's to take a next step to lean into community, to join one of our small groups, or to join the team at Collective. And so let me just explain really quickly how you can take this next step, and then we'll jump into today's story. The easiest way to take this next step, CT mentioned earlier, is you check a box on the connection card. Paper one, digital one, whichever you want. Right? You check which box. My staff will follow up with you this week. They'll talk to you about where do you want to fit in? What type of community do you want to be a part of? Where do you live? How, what is your life rhythm like? And they'll help you get connected. Right? That's the easiest way to do it. The most fun way to do it today is to head out to the lobby after service and hang out in the living rooms that we've set up out there and take some charcuterie and eat it while you hang out with people, right? We have charcuterie for you to try to convince you to spend a few minutes to meet people this week, right? Then you grab your cup, and I think there's like different options. There's even like a snack version of it. Grab that cup, head over to the wall that's in the lobby that has all of our small groups on it and scan the QR code, right? And take, take the next step. One of the cool things about Collective right now is that we're growing, and it's wonderful to see growth. But what we don't want to see is growth at the sake of growth. We want to see growth at the sake of community. In order for that to happen, you guys have to lean in a little bit, which is why we're doing this series right now. And here's one thing I want you to know about this. We aren't doing this for us. Right? There isn't a quota that I have to hit to prove that I'm a good lead pastor, and my staff doesn't have to hit a quota. This is something we are challenging you to do because we know it's what's good for you, right? We want you to have community and hopefully find a crew here. And so grab charcuterie, hang out in the living rooms, talk to other people and take a next step today. All right, so the story we're talking about today comes from the Old Testament of the Bible. This is the pre-Jesus time and this is a bit of a doozy, so just buckle up. Uh, it's about a guy named Job. And there's this whole book of Job in the Old Testament. And Job 1.1 says this, it says, there once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and he stayed away from evil. And so the first thing we ever learn about Job is that he loved God. 
Now, when you read the phrase, he feared God, it isn't that he cowered in the corner at the thought of God. It's this idea that he respected God. If you're ever reading your Bible and it says like the fear of God, it's this idea of respect and honor and trust. Job trusted God. It also says that Job was blameless. Now, this doesn't mean that Job was perfect. What this means is that when Job sinned, he recognized it. And then he repented of it and he sought out forgiveness from God when he fell short of God's standard for him. And so in just one verse, we realize that Job is just a really, really good guy. And then verse two and three talks about his life. It says this, he had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was in fact the richest person in that entire area. Now, if you keep reading on in the book of Job, you'll learn that Job was a really good dad. Job was also a really good husband. You learn that Job was wealthy, but more importantly, he was a good steward of the things that God had given to him. Like Job is this all around great guy and he's living this great life. In fact, this is what God says about Job. God says he is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Now, the problem is that Job is so great and he lives such a righteous and holy life that Satan takes notice of Job. Imagine being such a strong follower of God that your life shines on your marriage and your parenting and your generosity, your faith, all of it. And it shines so bright that Satan hates you because that's Job. And because Satan hates Job, he decides to test him because Satan believes that if life begins to fall apart for Job, that Job will turn his back on God. And so that's what Satan does. In Job 1, 13, it says this. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Now, if this was it, right? If this was the only thing that Job's life went through, like his life would be rocked. But if you know anything about Job's story, you know it gets worse. Verse 16 says this. While he was speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. It gets worse again, verse 17. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And it still gets worse, verse 18. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And in a matter of moments, this isn't days, this is moments. All, all of those messengers showed up at the same place at the same time. In a matter of moments, it's total devastation for Job. And what's important to note here is that these losses came at the hands of other people and natural disasters. In other words, Job didn't deserve any of this. He didn't ask for this. None of this is his fault. Like Job didn't do something to cause this pain in his life. And understandably, just like all of us, Job is crushed by this. Verse 20 says this, Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. Now the tearing of clothing and the shaving of his head were standard demonstrations of grief and anguish during that time. And so Job is in mourning. There is pain and sorrow. There's devastation in his life. But Satan doesn't care. He actually goes after Job again in Job 2. 
It says that he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. And so this says that he's still sitting among the ashes when this happened. And what this means is Job is still in the process of grieving, grieving, right? He's still in that place. And so this doesn't come years later or months later. This happened days later at best. And then the icing on the cake is verse nine. Job's wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. His own wife says, like, your life is so bad right now that dying would be better. So give up on God and give up on life. In a matter of a day or two, Job lost his home, his income, his children, his marriage. He lost everything. And I know this is a heavy story. Job's whole story is full of devastation. But these really are important details in Job's life as we get ready to talk about his crew. But before I talk about Job's friends, I wanna talk about what happened to Job for a second. I wanna gloss over everything Job has gone through because this is one of those classic why do bad things happen to good people scenarios. And so this is a bit of an aside, but I want to talk about this because some of you know what this feels like. Some of you have experienced things in your life and you have felt like Job. Some of you are here today because you are sitting in that place and you know what that feels like. You know what it's like to suffer loss. You know what it's like to lose someone you love. You know what it's like for a spouse to walk out on you. You know what it's like to lose a job or a house or everything. So here's the thing, and you see this through the rest of the story of Job if you keep reading. God never promises that life will be easy. God never promises that following Jesus will make everything perfect. In fact, if a Christian person has ever told you that following Jesus will make all your troubles go away, they're lying to you. To be honest, they're very delusional, delusional about life. Now, if you ever heard a pastor say, if you just had more faith, you wouldn't be dealing with that pain or that problem or that brokenness, that's also wrong. Right? Yes, our sin makes life harder than it needs to be. Us choosing not to walk in alignment with God will create trials for us, but following God doesn't make all of our problems go away. Look at Job's life. He was blameless, full of integrity, and life was still hard. In fact, Jesus actually promises that there will be trials and sorrows. John 16, 33, Jesus says this, I have told told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Here's what Jesus is saying. Life will be full of pain. It will be. There's no such thing as a pain-free existence. And I know that's what we want, but it's just not possible. And so if you take away anything today, if you write down any notes, if you take any picture of the screen, if you take away anything from Job's story, it's this. God is with us in our pain. If you keep reading the story of Job, that's what you see the entire time. It's a common thread through it, that God is with us in our pain. He's with us in our trials. And knowing that should bring us peace. It should give us strength and courage. So instead of trying to live a life without trials or pain, which isn't possible, what we need to do is hold on to God because he is our comfort. Author Beth Morse once said this, evil will come because evil will come. And those who have not withheld any part of themselves will find that God is enough when evil comes. That's ultimately the story of Job. He knows in the lowest moment of his life that God is enough. In fact, after he lost his home and his children, this is how Job responds in Job 1, jumping back to that story. Job said this, I came naked from my mother's womb and I'll be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken away. Praise the name of the Lord. And then in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. 
And then again, after the boils and his wife telling him to bail on his faith and bail on life, Job says this in Job 2.10. He says, should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So when the storm comes, not if, but when, when devastation comes, when pain comes, the only thing that will get you through that is faith in God. That, That is it. And if you take time this week to continue to read the end of Job's story, that is what you'll learn from all of this, through all the pain that he went through. And this is one of the reasons why we talk about baptism so much at Collective. This is one of the reasons why every single week we encourage you to take this next step. Baptism is the physical action that is tied to our faith in Jesus. Right? It's us publicly proclaiming Jesus is my leader and my savior. What you're saying is God is enough. But another reason why baptism is so important is that when things hit the fan, you can hold on to that moment, that baptism, as a reminder of who God is and what he has done in your life. Because there are going to be times in your life when it hits you in the mouth. And you really have two options. You can curse God and die, or you can praise the name of the Lord. And so when you're sitting in the ashes, what you get to do when you've taken this next step is you get to call back to that baptism moment. It's just like a wedding. When your marriage is struggling, you call back to the day where you made those promises to each other. When you made those vows, you said, I will do this in sickness and health and good and bad. You hold on to that. And baptism is the same thing. When life is hard, you sit down, you hold on to that moment where you said, no, I said yes to grace. I said yes to forgiveness. I said yes to this life that God has for me. I said yes, knowing that he is my comfort. And the thing is, if your foundation isn't on God, you read this story about Job, you don't know how he got through it because there is no recovery from this without God. And so as you understand this story, I just wanna encourage you, this is where you start, right? It starts with faith in God. It starts with trusting him. And the way you celebrate that, the way you go public with that is through baptism, right? You check the box in the baptism box, we call you, you this week. Because some of you will continue in this story with Job and you'll wonder how he got through it, right? And the, and the thing is, it's not his friends. And we'll talk about that in a, in a minute. He has really good friends. But it's not his friends that got him through it. It's his faith in God. His friends help though. So take that next step and hold on to that. That's the only way you get through these things. All right, let's talk about Job's crew. Let's pick the story back up. Job's wife leaves him. uh, And because of this, this is what happens next in Job 2, 11. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. And so there's gonna be three things I wanna point out about why we need a crew from Job's tragedy. Here's the first thing that you should write down. You need a crew because a crew shows up. Right, right, a crew shows up. This is what your crew does. When Job's friends hear of what he's going through, they leave their homes. They take off work. Right? They don't say, I don't have enough vacation days to get to you. Right? They tell their family, I'll be back when I get back. I'm going to go be with my friend. And I personally think that showing up is one of the most underrated aspects of a good friend. Right? These are friends in your life that don't need permission to be present in your life. These are friends in your life that don't tell you all the reasons why it's inconvenient to drop what they're doing to sit by you for multiple days as you suffer in those low moments. These guys stop their life and put it on hold to be with Job. Now, if you have people in your life that are only around when it's easy or when things are good or when you're happy, the thing is those aren't friends. These, These guys took days off work. They told their spouse, take care of the kids for me. I'll be back when I get back. My friend needs me right now because the crew shows up. The story continues in verse 11, actually gives us these guys' names. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. Hey, quick side note, when you're reading the Bible, you can just skip the names, okay? You don't need to know how to pronounce these. Don't let this create any insecurity in you when you read those. I don't even know if I said those right. I say it with confidence. I have no idea. 
But I do have to say this, one of the reasons why I'm pointing this out, because it's really easy to judge them based on how weird their names are. Um, I just think they have millennial parents. You guys are naming your kids some weird stuff right now. Uh, I saw on, on social media the other day, it was like, best names for your babies that are named after fonts. And one of the names was Papyrus, um, which if you know anything about graphic design, that's like the bane of all graphic design, but it was like top 10, Papyrus. Uh, now, I'm not saying you should name your kid Michael like every other kid that was born in the 80s. If you're born in the 80s, you probably have Michael, Brian, or Christopher somewhere in your name. I'm just saying, as you read this story at home this week, don't judge them. Uh, these names will probably be in the top 100 very soon. I'm assuming there's like collective kids that have these names. Someone's gonna coach me and they be like, my son's name is Bill Dad. I'm like, all right. So these are his friends. Like he knows them by name, right? They have a story, they have a life. Verse 12 says this, when they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. So the second takeaway is this, a crew shows empathy. Brene Brown says that empathy is connecting to the motion of another person, right? Now, it doesn't require that we've also experienced that same situation to feel this way. And we don't have to know exactly what Job is going through to empathize with him because it's about connecting. Empathy is about connecting with people so they know that they're not alone in their struggles. One of the issues that we have as people is that we often confuse sympathy with empathy. Sympathy is I feel bad for you. Empathy is I feel bad with you. Sympathy actually makes us feel more alone. Empathy helps us feel connected. This means that when you're going through those hard moments, your crew doesn't say, it's all part of God's plan to try to help you feel better. They, they don't try to find the silver lining in how you are feeling. They don't minimize your pain. They feel your pain with you. They grieve with you. Right? These guys didn't just feel Job's pain. They actually showed it, right? They tore their robes. They threw ashes over their heads. They did what Job did when he started to grieve. Really, you and your crew should be so tight that your pain is their pain and they feel it because the crew shows empathy. And Job 2.13 then says this, then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. So here's the third takeaway. A crew sits with you in your pain, right? And this is so important. Your crew is not going to try to rush you through whatever you are feeling. Right? And they are close enough to you that their grief or their anger or their sorrow doesn't make you feel uncomfortable. Right? The way you are feeling doesn't hurt their feelings because they're able to sit in that space. And the thing is, I think when we think about people in our life, we would have trouble sitting 15 seconds in silence with them, right? Especially if they were in pain. And Job's friends sat there for seven days without saying a word. Right? These are the types of friends that when you lose your job, they don't start talking about getting your resume back out there. These are the type of friends when your spouse leaves you, they're not immediately trying to get you to sign up for that dating app. They sit with you in your pain as long as it takes, and it does not make them feel uncomfortable. Now, if you know the story of Job, or if you go and read it this week, one of the things I do have to point out is that Job's friends weren't perfect. In fact, right after sitting with Job in silence for seven days, they do what everyone does to screw things up, and they actually start talking. If they just stayed in silence, it would have been so much better. And when they start talking, they actually begin to tell Job that the reason he's going through all of this is because he has somehow upset God, which isn't true. And next week, we're gonna talk a little bit more about how this three to five people in your life really should be followers of Jesus because when their scope is a little bit off, when their foundation's a little bit off, while they give decent advice, it goes in 
the wrong direction. You'll see Job holds true to his faith in God through the entire thing. But what's important about Job's friends is in this moment is that they were there when he needed them. And this is why we need a crew, especially when there are trials. We need people who will show up. We need people who will empathize with us and sit in our pain. We need people who will be with us in our mess. Over the past few years, psychologists and sociologists have been spending an increased amount of time studying interpersonal relationships. And many psychologists have actually been focusing on men. uh, And what they've found, shocking, men don't have a lot of friends. Uh, They've done a lot of studies to figure this out. They could have just asked men, they would tell you. Um, But what's interesting in these studies is that boys start out feeling just as connected in their close friendships as girls do. But when men begin to lose those protective social structures, things like high school and college, they, also, they often find themselves relationally adrift, unsure of how to establish or maintain close relationships with other people. And their studies have found that there's a huge cost to this. The Harvard study of adult development followed a group of men for eight decades. And throughout the study, at different points in their lives, these men were asked, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or afraid? What they're asking is, who would you call if you lost everything? Do you have someone that you could call if you broke your sobriety, if your wife walked out when you were struggling with your faith? And they found that the men who had someone to turn to lived happier lives and had happier marriages because they had someone that they could call in the middle of the night that wasn't their spouse. They also found that there's a physical impact as well. Close relationships with other people have more of an impact on our physical health and longevity than our genetics do. Having healthy, life-giving friendships can extend life by up to 22%. They found that loneliness is a risk factor comparable to smoking, obesity, and high blood pressure. And loneliness in men is correlated with higher cardiovascular disease and stroke. Here's the most alarming thing that they found. 80% of successful suicides right now are men. And one of the leading contributing factors is loneliness. Men, you need a crew. You do. You cannot do this life alone. And that's not because you are weak. It's because life is too heavy. Now, women, you're not off the hook on this one. I would argue that women equally struggle with friendships, at least close friendships. All right, let's put the circles back up on the screen. Culture will say that women are better at relationships, but my experience as a pastor says this isn't, that this is a false narrative that we are buying into. Now, do women tend to lead the way socially for their families and their husbands? Yes, typically. But do women have closer, more intimate relationships than men? No. Now, here's what I've seen. And women, you can come up to me and correct correct me if I'm wrong in the lobby. I'm just going to argue with you anyways, but you can do it. Um, I had multiple women come up to me after first service and say, you're right, I don't trust people, right? And so, you know, this is right. We're going to keep going now. Um, Women are better at creating community. If you look at that second circle, uh, women are better when it comes to knowing the names of their neighbors. Right? You you know the people who live around you. Um, You're part of the PTO. You volunteer to help out when it comes to your kids' activities, sports, stuff like that. Um, Women serve more in churches. So women tend to have a community. But what I've seen is that women stop short of letting people in. And because of that, women don't actually have a crew. Right? And so while men tend to have a crowd that they act like is their, is their community, 
And if you ever want to test them on this, just ask them the names of their friends. And they'll be like, oh, the Thai guy. Like, it's their crowd, right? It's not, it's not community. You know, the guy that walks a little weird. And you're like, nope, that's, that is your crowd. You exist around these people. And so what men will do is they'll act like their crowd is their community. What women do is they act like their community is their crew. And both, both fall short. And my theory is that women struggle to find a crew for the same reason that men struggle. And it's that we don't want to be vulnerable. None of us want to be vulnerable because there is a possibility of getting hurt. The word vulnerable literally means capable of being wounded. It's this idea of opening up ourselves to risk and damage at the hands of another person. Being vulnerable at its truest form means we could get hurt. And, and for some of you, you have a lot of good reasons to not be vulnerable because at some point in your life, you were hurt by a friend and they delivered wounds that felt like they came from an enemy. They lied to you, they gossiped about you, they cheated you, they didn't show up when you needed them the most and then gave you a bunch of BS reasons why. And because of that, you got wounded. And in that wounding, you vowed to never get hurt again, which is why you push people away, right? And when you think about these circles, you don't see levels of friendship that exist. What you see are walls that you get to put up to keep people out, right? You recognize that there's this wall in between your community and your crew and you go, that's my barrier, Right? You, you don't see this as an opportunity to move people in and closer to you or out who shouldn't be closer to you. And I understand this. This makes a ton of sense. Like I get it. I have deep-seated abandonment issues in my soul. And I know that I can't get hurt if I don't let people into that tightest circle. And the primary reason that we avoid being vulnerable with others is because we desire safety. And safety can be a good thing, but when we take a good thing and we make it the ultimate thing, that good thing ends up being a very destructive thing. When you make safety the ultimate desire in your life, you end up making decisions that are very, very destructive. And so the reason we don't show our community who we really are, the reason why we don't open up with people about what's going on in our lives, the reason why we're not honest about the things we are struggling with is usually based on the fact that we are afraid that people will hurt us. And in our efforts to gain safety, we often do two things with our friendships. We isolate and we hide. But that is not how God designed us to live. We were not created to be alone and isolated. And honestly, living that way isn't safe. And so I know that there is a real risk in finding your crew. Like, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. You could open up and be vulnerable with people. And because people are people and because people are sinful and because people make mistakes, you could get burned. But the alternative to this is living in a very cold and dark life where there is no vulnerability, where you sit in the ashes of destruction and pain by yourself, where you have nobody to sit with you or talk to or help get you out of that place, right? So it's vulnerability or pain all by yourself. Go back to Job. His life was rocked. But how much worse would it have been if he didn't have God as his foundation, if he didn't have a crew that showed up? So here's the last thing I want you to write down. You cannot have a crew without vulnerability. You will never know how healthy your friendships could be if you're too afraid to be real and vulnerable with the people that you spend time with. Right? And if you want people, you look at Job and you're like, I want those people in my life. If you want people who can sit with you in the worst moments of your life, it starts with vulnerability. It starts with you actually telling them what these worst moments of your life are, we have to be honest about our mess. We have to be honest about our insecurities. What that looks like in a friendship is honestly telling your friends, hey, that thing you do makes me feel insecure because most of the time they're the ones pushing on it and they don't even know it. 
right? And you're opening yourself up for more wounds. We have to be honest about our sin and our pain, our disappointment, our wounding, our fears. One of my friends said it to me like this. He said, you either get all of me or none of me. You get all of me, all my faults, all my fears, all my insecurities, and all the good that comes with that as well. But I won't pretend anymore. I won't hide. I won't wear a mask. If you want to be my friend, you get all of this, or you get none of this, and we aren't friends. And he said, do you know what this is called? This is called a really good way to live. This is called freedom. Here I am. Do you want to be my friend? Great. I've got nothing to hide. In order to have the crew that we long for, it starts with us stepping into vulnerability. And when we choose vulnerability and when we choose honesty, and that's met with vulnerability and honesty, we step out of isolation, we step out of fear and into the friendships that lead us to living a better life. We have to open ourselves up to be wounded in order to experience the relationships that God has for us. Let's pray. God, above everything, as we, we go through the story of Job, um, uh, we are thankful that in our pain, you are with us. God, we're thankful that in our mess and in our storms, when the worst moments of our life happen, you bring us comfort and you bring us peace, you bring us hope, you bring us joy. Because God, a lot of us are in that place right now, or we've been in that place, and we know that place is coming. And we're just thankful that in the storms of life, we can always hold on to you. But God, as we read this story, one of the things that we are hopeful for is that maybe we have friends that will sit with us as well, that will feel our pain, that won't be uncomfortable with the way that we're feeling or the things that we're working through, the things that we're failing at but trying really hard to get better at. So God, as, as we hear this story and we, we be challenged uh, to step into vulnerability, God, I pray this week that, that our whole church takes that risk. And God, understanding that we might step into vulnerability with somebody and they might not reciprocate and that, that'll hurt. But all that, that tells us is what circle they should be in. And we, we go to the next person that we can open up with. God, I, I just pray that as people step into that place, they find the life-giving friendships that they've been longing for. Really, that they've been putting a ton of energy to push people out of because they're afraid. God, help us take that risk this week. God, ultimately... Um, It'd be really easy, too, to pray for a pain-free existence. Um, but we know that isn't possible, so we pray that in the pain we have community. God, we pray that in the pain we feel your comfort. God, we pray that in the pain uh, we feel your peace. And we have a really good group of people around us to guide us toward those things. God, we thank you and love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.